And who was it who wasn't here? Cameron, you're not here today, right? Oh, <laughs> I looked at it before. So that's you sure you're here? Okay. <laughs> there you go. Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah, he's here. Okay. All right. Well, we have an article review coming up due uh, tomorrow or today if you've got a paper copy and you're turning it in. I'll take it today or you can turn it in after class or you can turn it in tomorrow. A couple of you already emailed it to me. I got a couple. And then we have the iTunes quiz which is up and available. Oops, I just tried to run off with the pen there. Sorry, sir. The iTunes quiz which is up and available through next Tuesday. So if you want to work on that this weekend, um, it goes pictures through, gosh, uh, through the 8th of April. So it goes through Easter. There's nothing more recent than that. So anything after the 8th of April will be included on the quiz four coming up in a, in a couple weeks. Exam four I have scheduled already. Can we just do an exam? But we're t running to the end of the semester. Um, I put it there for 19th of April. Likely, unless there's a big complaint, I'm probably going to do it the same as the last one. Complaint or not complaint or yes? Do it the same as the last exam where I'll give it to you on, yeah. Okay. Okay. It made, it made a few points difference, but it didn't make, you know, it's not like everybody got perfect scores on it either still, so. That's what I'm doing, that's what I'm likely going to do because we still have enough to get through. Although I'll likely still be through those chapters by that point, so. Be, give it to you again on a Thursday, which is the 19th, turn it back in the following Tuesday. And if you're doing the replacement assignment that I gave out right before break, remember that way, way back? That's due the 20th of April because we have observations coming up due the next week and then a final exam coming up and then you're through with me, you don't have to come and see me again anymore. All of that good stuff. So, so that's, what's, that's what's coming up. What I'm likely to do, chapter 14, 13 we just finished and I didn't really want to rush that one because usually people like hearing about the black holes and like discussing them and I didn't really want to rush through that. Chapter 14 we'll probably be able to go through pretty quickly. So I'll hopefully get all of that done today. My fingers crossed, otherwise we're really going to start ending up behind. And then 15 will finish next week. Um, and then I'm hoping to take about half the class on the 19th to go over your observation project. So we'll sit here together as a group. I'll give you a lecture for the first part of the class, then I'll give you some of the numbers, and I'll give you, we'll go through the calculations, I'll go through some examples. I'll have you do the examples here while I'm here. So you can work on the examples. You'll have you know, about a half hour, 45 minutes in class where you can work on those and work on the graphs and do it all here while I'm here to help you. So essentially it'll be a lab. Half of that class will be a lab in this class section with me. So go through all of the work for the observations. If you don't have observations, I bring in some numbers that you can use. So you can go through the calculations and you can do the rest of the assignment. Even if you don't get credit for making observations or making enough observations, you can still do the rest of the assignment. And Instead of, you know, with 120 points, but instead of getting 0 out of 120, you can use my data and maybe get 90 out of 120 if you do everything else perfect. So, not great, but it's certainly a lot better than a, better than a 0. When, when are we going to do this, this observation stuff? I'm planning on doing it on the 19th. That's my plan, barring, you know, anything else coming up. I can't guarantee anything, but that's what I'm planning. Yes, sir? Then they'll be due the 27th. They'll be doing a following week. So that way I figure if I do them on a Thursday, you have 
a whole weekend plus a full week to look at anything else and do the write-ups before they're actually due. I didn't want to do it and have them do the next day or anything. Yes, sir? It's roughly 10 observations. I'm looking for, for full credit on the observation portion, which is about, it's on that original data sheet I gave you. It's like 25 or 30 points worth of, is the data. I'm looking for 10 spaced over the semester, so not, you know, April 16th, April 17th, April 18th, April 9th, you know. But yeah, roughly 10 is what I'm looking for. So if you've got 10 spaced out over two months, you've got enough data. But I'll give you some numbers and that's what will go through the calculations in class so I can have everybody going through the same numbers and looking at them and I can tell you that you're on the right, you're on the right track. So you're not sitting there struggling on the 26th of April, you know, tearing your hair out at night trying to figure out how to do this calculation. We'll go through the whole thing in class and you'll do about 10 or 15 of them. I'll do the first one or two on the board together and then I'll have you go through the others and just make sure you can go through and make sure you know how to do them. And if there's questions, I can answer questions right there. I can tell you if you're right or wrong at the time. Yes, looks like you had another question. Yeah. That's okay. So if we don't have the 10 or more spaced out over the whole mm -hmm. semester, then... Then you'd get some of the credit for the observation portion. But we still have this month to do that. Yeah. You still have through the date they're due. <coughs> so you're not, you're not out yet. You know, you still have time to make them. I'm just one, if I don't want to wait till the last day, if I do this on Thursday, then I don't want to do all of it on Thursday and have you stressing on Thursday when it turns out, you know, someone else has a 15-page research paper due and someone else has a big exam on Friday, you know, a big exam that day, you know. So I'm trying to give you plenty of time there to work it around. So, but I'll go over that, but I'll, we'll spend a good chunk, probably about half the day on that Thursday working. I'll probably about half the class on that day is what I'm leaning towards. I'm hoping to get through chapter 14 today, and then 15 in a day and a half, and then have the rest of that time for the observations. Anything else on those? No, no, no? Okay. All right, so that's what's coming up. Um, picture of the day for today. Yuri's planet. Look familiar? Earth, um, actually taken from the space station. You're seeing part of one of the solar panels of the space station sort of in the way there. Why Yuri's planet? Well, 51 years ago today was uh, Yuri Gagarin, I think is the last name, was the first person to actually get this sort of view of the Earth. So it's been 50 years, 51 years ago today was the time that the first person was actually up in orbit, able to see the Earth looking down on it, you know, not just from an airplane at a low height, but actually up where you can act to the point where you could see curvature of the Earth, see all the nice aurora out there, all the nice green of the aurora out there, to actually get a view of this type. This type. And this is actually looking down on Russia, that would be, that would be Moscow right there. So actually looking down on Russia in honor of his, of his, observa of his uh, achievement there and being the first person to actually be able to look down upon the Earth. So it's only been about 50, been, been just over 50 years and things have changed a heck of a lot in 50 years. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about the computers and things, you know, what computers were like 50 years ago, you know, there's, no, there's nothing. You know, you fill this room and you still wouldn't have the power you got in your iPhone. Right? You know, have more power in your iPhone than you had in that. The um, machines that took us to the moon. You know, the computers in the lunar module. Oh, and I don't remember the numbers anymore, but it was, you know, some number of kilobytes of RAM. You know, it was measured in kilobytes, not 
gigabytes now, you know, you get two, four gigabytes, now it was like kilobytes, you know, two kilobyte, four kilobyte, it was very, very small amount of memory that was done in order to get, and that was able to get people to the moon. So things have changed quite significantly over that, over those 50 years. So, pretty little picture there. Questions? No questions, no questions. Okay. Well, let's go ahead on to chapter 14 then. And we'll look at that. There's going to be one more. I decided, I, I added, I said three. I'm changing it. I'm going to put four, which will make a total of 12 quizzes. And then I'm going to drop your lowest two of any quiz. So you're, you're combining the iTunes quiz and yes. the regular quiz. They all go together. There's, they go together in your grade. So there's 12 of them. And I'll take out the lowest two. So if you missed one, that get, that'll get dropped. It's not dropped now. It won't be dropped till the end of the semester. But once they start adding in, so you'll end up having a second chance to have one dropped. That'll probably run with just the one starting after this through the end of the month. So I'll probably just run through the end of April, so that, or maybe just the first day or two of May so that you have time to take it because finals May 8th. So you don't have much time into May before it's, before it's done. But there will be one more iTunes quiz, but then instead of dropping just one of the 11 quizzes, I'm going to drop two of 12. So. It is extra, but it'll help you. So if you decide you don't want to do it and just want to skip it all together, it's not going to hurt you either because it will get dropped. All right, so let's take a look at these. And we're going to sort of zoom out a little bit. We've spent a good amount of time last time. We talked about the black holes. And I said I took a little bit more time there. I, just want, I know that's something that people enjoy talking about. It's something you want to take an astronomy course that you want to hear about. So we're going to zip a little bit more through our galaxy. And I'm going to try to get through most of that today if I can. So here's a picture of a galaxy, not a picture of our galaxy. But can't really see our galaxy very well. We're stuck inside it. So it's very hard to see. But we can look at other galaxies. And this is probably something somewhat similar to our own galaxy. Our galaxy is a spiral galaxy. So it does have this sort of spiral structure where you have a nucleus and you have arms coming out. And all the light that you're seeing here comes from stars and nebulae. So this is many billions of stars, just their li the light of many billions of stars glowing. And you see a number of different things. You see a lot of blue in the spiral arms. That's the very young stars. That's where stars are currently forming. You notice that as you get further in, you see less and less blue. And it tends to get yellower. As you get towards the nucleus, there isn't as much star formation currently going on there. So you don't have the big bright blue stars that cause it to glow blue. It tends to glow more of a yellowish and even into a red. The red that we see is actually, are actually nebula. That's hydrogen emission of star formation regions. So those are, again, regions where stars are currently forming. Now, galaxies are a relatively new thing in astronomy. Relatively new, you've heard about galaxies all your life, right? But relatively new in terms of how long things have been around. And I pulled up one old book here that I have. And it's Astronomy for Everybody. From, well, it was printed in the 1940s, but it was the edition is copyright 1932. So it goes through what we knew of astronomy from up through the early, very early 1930s. And what we've studied so far in terms of galaxies, let's see, it's a 334-page book. 
Our information on our galaxy and all the other galaxies in the universe and everything else starts on page 325. So the last few, last nine pages here, that's everything that we're going to study in the rest of the course. And that was 1932. Okay, that's a long time ago, but not that long ago. You know, my father-in-law was one, so I mean, it's, it's a long time. It's a reasonably long time, but it's not. You know, it's 80-some years, but that's our knowledge has changed drastically that, you know, at that point, I could have done this lecture in, you know, 20 minutes. I could have told you everything we knew about ga our galaxy and galaxies. And actually, if you read this, from when you listen to what I say, most of this is wrong. They're still discussing here, well, is our galaxy, is the Milky Way one galaxy, or is it actually a combination of galaxies? So there's a lot of information that we were still learning in the early 30s that has changed very drastically, you know, that we know so much more now and to the point that we'll have a whole chapter on the Milky Way galaxy. We have a whole chapter on other galaxies. We have a chapter on dark matter, which is even more recent. And we have a chapter on cosmology that we're going to be talking over the next couple of weeks. And that's, you know, stuff that was all condensed there into about nine pages worth of information. So for our galaxy, what we're going to look at is, first of all, our galaxy. How do we measure it? So how do we measure? How do we figure out how big our galaxy is? It's not an easy thing to do because we are stuck inside it. And I don't know if I've given this class the comparison. I usually do. I say that, you know, it's like trying to figure out what is Blocker Hall like? You can't leave this room. How do you figure out how, how far does, I mean, are there more rooms up there? You know, is there, what's down below? You, you know, what can you figure, what can you figure out? You've got a couple little windows to look out. There's not a lot that easy to determine. So it's very difficult to determine what our galaxy is like because you're stuck inside it. We can't go take that magical spaceship ride, you know, go up thousands of parsecs or thousands of light years up above our galaxy and look back down on it. We have to do it all from looking inside and we can't you know, move around. We're in one spot in our galaxy. We can't say, well, let's go see what, you know, we can go down the hall here and find out, oh, there's more stuff here. If you're confined to this room, it's very difficult to determine what, our, what the building looks like. It's also very difficult as we're stuck in the galaxy to determine what the structure is like. Formation of the Milky Way and leading back from structure on the spiral arms. We'll look at all that. Mass of the Milky Way, how can we weigh our galaxy? You know, big giant scale to weigh our galaxy or something. There is a, we can do that looking at the motions of the stars. How the stars orbit and our understanding of gravity can tell us about how much material there is in the Milky Way. And there's some problems there because there's a lot more material apparently due to gravity than what we see. You can add up the masses of all the stars and all the nebulae that we see and there is apparently a lot more mass around our galaxy than we would normally we would expect. And then we'll go back at the end and look at the center of our galaxy. So what's down there at the center? We can't look at it visibly, it's invisible. Invisible light, it's invisible. You can't see it. You can sit there and stare at the center of the galaxy all day in visible light and you're not going to see anything. Um, but we can look at it in radio and see a lot more detail. It's one of the brightest radio objects in the sky. So that's what we're going to skim through. Now if you've printed out the lecture notes, you're going to see a few things missing. I've taken out a couple of slides as you go through. So I just did that, tried to condense it a little bit. A few things that were repeated extra or that I knew I was going to say something, I didn't bother to print out the whole, put, put the whole lecture notes on here just so I can try to get through it a little bit, little bit faster. So here's what we have. Here's our sort of a side view of our galaxy. And 
see us here, our galaxy stretching across. It's a very flattened disk galaxy and has a bulge towards the center and then goes out in each side. We're way out towards one of the one of the edges of it. So we're not near the middle of our galaxy at all. We're well out towards the edges. And we see when we look at the when we look towards the galaxy, so this is sort of this arrow is what you would see looking this direction around that white arrow. You're going to see a lot of stars because you're looking right in the plane of the disk of our galaxy. All the stars or most of the stars are flattened down to that disk. So when we look towards the center of our galaxy, we can't see the center, but as we look towards the center, we see a lot more stars. You know, what's over here, we can't even see at all. So we're only seeing this very narrow neighborhood of our galaxy. But there's still a lot more stars in this direction versus looking up or down. There's many fewer stars, so those stars are just scattered around. There's a few above and below. But most of it is concentrated in what we call the Milky Way. And the Milky Way looks a lot like other galaxies that we see that are flattened edge on like this. Sometimes we see the galaxies not like that first picture I showed you where you saw the beautiful spiral arms. Sometimes they happen to be tilted so that we're looking at them from the edge. And they look a lot like our galaxy. And that's one of the ways we can try to determine what our galaxy looks like is by looking at you know, not just one galaxy, but a whole bunch of them. Yes, ma'am? Okay. You know like pictures where you see like an arm of the Milky Way? Mm -hmm. Are you seeing this? Like are you looking toward the center when you can see that? When you're seeing that, you're taking this, but you've got to get a distance. Okay. You have to try to map. And usually what you're seeing is not visible light. It's usually done in the radio. Okay. It's usually mapped out in the radio where you can look through the dust. And you can map out where the hydrogen clouds are. And they kind of trace the spiral arms as well. So you can see it, but most of the pictures they show, most of the pictures, when you see a real pretty picture of a spiral galaxy, it's not ours. It's another uh, galaxy. Like pictures taken from Earth where you can just see like, in the sky like, a really um, just tons of stars. Mm -hmm. um, Okay. Yeah, something like I, yeah, you I wouldn't really see, you don't really see the spire. It's almost just a circle around the sky. Right. It's just like it looks like yeah. just a stretch. Yeah. Like that's that's our galaxy, and that's just looking. That's just the concentration of stars in the disk of this galaxy, in the of the galaxy. So that's what you're seeing. So it'll look like a big band around the sky. So it'll go around, and it actually makes a complete circle around. If you could see it. But that's what we see when that's what you'd see when you'd look out at night. Now not not around here, you've got to get to a reasonably dark site to be able to see it. But it goes pretty much coming up in the summer, it actually goes pretty much straight overhead and then down right to the south. And the center of the galaxy would be almost towards the south. So if you have a nice dark place this summer to go look, you know, if you're gonna be out camping or something, you know, take a look in the evening, look straight overhead, you'll probably see that diffuse band of light, which is our own galaxy. Here's a couple other examples of spiral galaxies. And again, it depends on how they happen to be oriented in space. We might see them, as we saw in the very first image of a galaxy, looking straight down on them, seeing all the detail of their spiral structure. You might see other ones. Okay, that looks a lot like our galaxy, right? That looks like the Milky Way in the sky, except a lot smaller. You see the dust band going through. That's sort of what we saw in terms of our galaxy, looking at our galaxy from inside, except we're looking at another galaxy at John. So we're doing that as a way of interpreting and comparing what we, the information, little information we have on our galaxy and comparing it to other things that we see. Some of the parts of the galaxy, you have the disk, 
That's the flattened portion of the galaxy. The bulge is sort of the central area. And then there's a halo, which is actually all around the galaxy. It's a big, a big sphere of stars almost around the galaxy. Much less material there, no real big bright stars, but there is a sort of a halo around each of the galaxies as well. So you don't see that, for example, in this galaxy, but there is. You know, if you were close enough to it, you could actually see a diffuse halo with, a, with some stars scattered around the entire thing, almost a big sphere around it. And we do see that in our, in our own galaxy. Now to measure the Milky Way, one of the ways you can do that is just to sort of look and count stars. Go out with your telescope and look at how many stars are there in each direction on the sky. So if you count that, and this is what uh, William Herschel did back in the late 1700s, and he just looked and he'd count, you know, okay, in this direction, this section of the sky, I see, you know, 50 stars. Here I see 70. Here I see 120. And did that and did a map of the entire sky, counting each, you know, each section of the sky and where did you see the most stars. Certain areas you saw a lot of stars here. Certain you, some, some you saw much fewer. And this was one of the earliest maps of our galaxy. Doesn't look a lot like the ones I just showed you, right? It had the sun not quite to the center, but relatively close to the center. You know, center might have been about here. So we were relatively close to the center. His biggest problem with this that he didn't know at the time, and again, this is just visible stars, just what you could see, is that he didn't realize that, especially towards the center, there's a lot of gas and dust in that disk, in the disk of the galaxy. So it blocked out a lot of the light of stars. And remember, the dust blocks out and makes the stars dimmer. So there could be lots of stars that just, by the time the light gets to us, they've gone through so much gas and dust, they're invisible. They've all, all their light has been blocked out. So we can't see anything from them. And he was not aware of that. It was still, it was one of the earliest maps of the, of the galaxy, trying to be able to determine you know, what is our galaxy like. Now if you go back, I showed you the book from the 1930s. This goes back even older. We're talking late 1700s. So we didn't, at the time, we didn't even understand stars. We were starting to get a better understanding of stars in the, th in the 30s. But we didn't even completely under, we knew they were there and we could count them, but we didn't have an understanding of how they worked at the time. So the big problem was, again, clouds of gas and dust blocking out our view. So we couldn't tell it's sort of, he selected, could select only the stars closest to the, closest to the sun, only the ones that we could actually see. Anything that was much, too much further away, and the center of our galaxy to this scale would have been, three, is it about eight, so probably somewhere over here-ish. So I mean, we're not even seeing to the center of our galaxy, he's just counting the number of stars there. But it was one of the good first attempts. Now one of the things we need to do is to be able to determine distances. And I've given you a couple ways. We've talked about some ways of determining distances. We talked about parallax, which worked for only a few stars very close to us. And we used the spectroscopic parallax, which worked a lot better if you could actually see a star. You could see the star and get its spectrum. Then you could use the HR diagram and go back and say, oh, there's where it is. There's how bright it should be. I can get a distance. There's some other stars that are called variable stars. And these are two types that are given here. There are called RR Lyrae stars as after the first, num first number of that, of that member of that group. And there are Cepheid variables. So there were two actual two stars, two different types of stars that vary. 
Now, sometimes stars are variable. They can be variable for different reasons. You can have stars that are variable because they're eclipsing, that something's passing in front of them. You can have stars that are variable like the novae and the supernovae that we talked about before that get real bright and then disappear. That's not what these are. These are what we'd call an intrinsically variable star. So they're variable, but it's intrinsic to the star. The star is actually pulsing and getting brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter on a very regular basis. With an RR Lyrae star, it might take about a day, half a day to a day. They'll get brighter and fainter. With the Cepheid variable star, it can run from a day to 100 days. But there's a big change in the brightness. And you can look here. Here's an example shown. You know, if you look at all these stars here, two images taken, separated by a certain amount of time. And took two images and you just shifted your, shifted your film off a tiny bit. So for most of the stars, you saw two stars of the same brightness, same brightness, same brightness. But here, the one that's marked, you saw one that is a lot brighter than the, than the other. It's the same star, just at two different times. So if you observe this, and you can observe this period as something very easy to watch, you know, we can just, just have to look at how bright the star appears. We don't need to know how bright it really is. We can just need to know how bright it appears to be in the sky. That's something we can very easily measure. So we can measure this period of variation. Why is that so important? What difference does it make if we can do that? It turns out that that relates in these stars, it relates to how bright they really are. So if we, if, the, if we can determine the period, and that allows us to determine how bright their intrinsic brightness, their absolute magnitude, their real bright, how bright this star really should be in the sky, then we can use it to find the distance. Now why are these stars variable? Here's our HR diagram coming back again. And where they are on the HR diagram is they're way up Towards here, they're up towards the horizontal branch. If you remember from, from the evolution of a star like the sun, so they'd go, a star would go up and then it would land on this sort of horizontal branch. And then the Cepheid variables are up above it. They lie in what we call the instability strip. There's an area of the HR diagram where the star is not completely stable. So it's not tearing itself apart with instability, but it's, it's pulsing. So it'll get a little bit bigger and a little bit smaller, and a little bit bigger and a little bit smaller. On a very regular time scale, between half a day and maybe 100 days. And that's something that we can very easily measure. And we know where they are. And once we figure out, oh, it's an RR Lyrae star, we can immediately identify it as such. And if you look at where they fall on the, where they fall on the HR diagram, notice how it falls in a little horizontal disk. That means they're all about the same brightness. So if you, found an, if you find an RR Lyrae star in the sky, you know, how, you know it's, in, it's true brightness. You know where it is on the HR diagram. You know it's true brightness. And if you know it's true brightness, you know it's absolute magnitude. And remember that big, long, yucky equation I showed you? M minus M, five, you know, all that stuff. If you know that absolute magnitude, if I can figure it out, then boom, I've got the distance. It gives us another method for determining distances to stars that works quite far away. Because look at how bright these stars are. Are our Lyrae stars? Eh, little brighter than some of the main sequence stars. But look where the Cepheid variables. They go up towards those tremendously things that are thousands and tens of thousands of times brighter than the sun. So those are some of the brighter stars in the universe. So we can actually see some in distant galaxies. 
not, not the furthest galaxies, but in actually a galaxy outside our own, we can actually measure those and use them to determine distances. And we get the distances from, as I said here, the fact that there's a relationship between the period, how, what their pulsational period is. Our Lyrae stars between a half a day and a day, but they're all right about the same brightness. Not exactly, there's some range to it, but pretty close. You can get a pretty good estimate of how bright they are. And a lot better than any other way of determining the distances. Cepheids, not quite so simple. But there is a relationship in that the Cepheid that pulses, gets bright and faint real quick, is a fainter star, fainter luminosity. And the ones that pulse on very long time scales that take you know, months to get big and then compact back down, those are the brighter ones. So, again, this is an easy number to measure. All we've got to do is watch the star. Here you can watch it for a couple days and identify it as a Lara Lyra star. Here you might have to watch it for a few weeks or a few months or you know, half a year to a year to be able to measure its period accurately. But once you do, once you measure that period, you've got the luminosity. The luminosity is the key. If you can determine what that true luminosity is supposed to be, then all of a sudden you've got the distance. And you know, we can't just take our tape measure out there, we can't send a rocket ship out there, we can't bounce radar signals, signals off these things. There's no other way to determine the distance as we get further and further out. So our methods of determining distance get you know, more detailed. You've got to go through more steps to be able to get the distances. When we look at the RR Lyrae stars, we find a lot of them. RR Lyrae stars, again, they're in that horizontal branch. They're stars like the sun, something the sun might be coming up in five billion years. The sun might turn into one of these. They're found in globular clusters. They're very old, so they're stars like the sun that have finished their lives. You know, not sun still has five billion years to go. Well, these stars have already gone, they have lived ten billion years. They're almost as old as the galaxy. And they're found in the globular clusters. Globular clusters are like mini galaxies, little big globs of stars. And what we see is that they are scattered all around the sky. They're not just in the plane of the galaxy. They're kind of all over the place. But they sort of orbit around our galaxy. So we can use those when we can determine the distances to all these globular clusters because they all have these RR Lyrae stars. And as we looked at each one and could determine its distances and map things out, well, remember where we were before. We were you know, our galaxy was right about here and we were a little bit off-centered. Now all of a sudden, when we can measure with the globular clusters and using those RR Lyrae stars, our galaxy just got significantly bigger than it was before. So our galaxy has grown in size. Not really, it was always the same size of course, but we've learned more about it. So we learned that instead of being relatively close to the center, we're actually 8,000 parsecs from the center Parsec is about three light, a little over three light years, so you're talking 24, 25, 26,000 light years from the center. So we're not very close to the center at all. We're actually out towards the edge of the, edge of the galaxy. The nice thing about the globular clusters, again, is that they're spread all over. And if you remember, that dust is concentrated very tightly right along the center, right along the plane of the galaxy. So when you're trying to look at these globular clusters that are very far away, but they're out of the plane of the galaxy, we can see them. So there's, no, there's not as much dust for them to come through, so these big bright globular clusters shine through the little bit of dust that they might have to travel through. So 
When you're looking at the light from this globular cluster, well, it's got to go through a little bit of dust to get there. But not compared to stars way over here where we don't see too many things, where you have to go through not only all the other objects, all the rest of the galaxy to get to us. So those, looking at those gave us a much better picture of the galaxy than Herschel could. Herschel wasn't wrong. I mean, he was as right as he could be at the time. All he could look at was the stars he could see. He didn't realize at the time how much dust there was out there blocking his view. So we're actually well out from the galactic center. Again, th tens of thousands of light years away from, this, from the galactic center. That's just probably a good thing. You probably wouldn't want to be too close to it. There is a big black hole there. It probably wouldn't be the most pleasant. There's lots of um, intense radiation. So it probably wouldn't be the most pleasant place in the, in the galaxy to live anyway. So it's kind of nice that we're a little further, little further out. So our distance ladder has grown a little bit. We looked at, you know, within the solar system and very, very close to us, you can bounce radar signals off Mars and you can bounce radar signals off Venus to determine distances. Doesn't do much good beyond that. Stellar parallax works out to a few hundred light years, 200 parsecs, maybe 600 light years, where you can actually measure the motions of the stars. That's a good one. The good thing with this one is this is the only direct method. Everything else here, we start, this ladder starts to depend, each step depends on the previous one. So this is direct. This is actually determining the distance. We don't need to know anything else. In order to use spectroscopic parallax, well, it works because we just calibrate our HR diagram, but how do we calibrate it? We have to know the distances to some of the stars. Means we have to have parallax for some of those stars in order to determine what their absolute magnitudes are. Once we calibrate some of them and get that calibrated, then it works, but this step depends on this step. So any errors here, go here. And then you go, as you go up this diagram, and there's about three more steps to go on it that we'll hit over the rest of the semester. Each step depends on the previous ones. So you use this to determine distances, then you use this to determine distances. Now you can go out to you know, millions of parsecs, hun, um, hun, uh, 75 million light years. So you can go out quite a ways in the, in the universe to measure. 75 million light years is our own backyard in terms of the universe. You know, we've been talking about very, very close things so far. We're going to be jumping out and shooting out through space very quickly over the last couple weeks of the class. So we won't just talk about megaparsecs, we'll be talking about things like billions of parsecs, gigaparsecs. So, and the whole universe would be you know, many gig, several gigaparsecs in extent. So when we're talking about only 25 million, that's hardly, that's hardly anything. It's really the, the few galaxies closest to us that we can actually use this to measure. But it does work. It's another stepping stone to be able to determine distances. Because, as I said, here's our direct one. These are two direct methods. I don't need anything else to use these, but they only work when you're incredibly close to us. They don't help us with determining distances to the galaxies directly, indirectly, because they help us calibrate these other methods. So what does our galaxy look like? Well, here's an example, a uh, sketching of what our galaxy might look like. And we have center of the galaxy buried down in there. The galactic bulge around it, so a bulge of material, bulge of stars. Not quite as flat, flattened as the rest of the galaxy. You have the disk with the spiral arms. The disk is where all the interesting stuff is happening. The disk is what, where you have 
the gas and dust. It's where you have open clusters of stars. It's where you have the very young O and B stars, the blue stars that are glowing that cause it to illuminate. It's where you see the spiral arms. It's where you see the emission nebulae. So all of the interesting stuff is going on in the, in the, in the disk of the galaxy. That's where we happen to be located too. But again, we can't see a lot of it just because we're stuck, you know, we're stuck inside here someplace. We can't really see all of this as we could, you know, if we were out here someplace on a planet or in one of these globular clusters, you could be looking down on the galaxy and be able to see it. Yes, sir? Megaparsec is a million parsecs, yes. So you'll hear things like uh, they'll do kiloparsecs for a thousand megaparsecs. When we get out further in the universe, we'll start talking about gigaparsecs or billions of parsecs. So we've just been talking, most of what we've talked about in the classes, again, has been really, really close to us in, he, in here. We've been all real close. We've been talking about you know, stars and stuff that's right around us. We're starting to jump out in terms of just looking at our galaxy. And when we start looking at more galaxies and clusters of galaxies and everything else, we're, we're zipping, out there, zipping out there in space. Now when we look at the parts, there's different components to the galaxy. And we're sort of building up to how our galaxy formed here. And when we look at the galaxy and we look at the orbits of the stars, when you look in the disk, the disk has all nice uniform orbits. Everything's going around in nice big, almost circular orbits, sort of like the planets orbiting around the sun. You have stars orbiting around the center of the galaxy. So massive black hole in here someplace is a lot, is a lot of the gravity, but all the other stars sort of add up to. And just these tend to go in relatively nice circular elliptical orbits around the galaxy. And they all go in the same direction. Well, that's kind of nice too, because you don't have stars going this way and stars going this way, and then you start, you know, smashing things into each other. The whole thing goes in one direction. It rotates pretty nice and pretty nice. When you look at the halo of the galaxy, it's not. In the halo of the galaxy, again, you have the flat disk here. You have some stars orbiting this way, and you have some stars orbiting this way, and every every which way. So they're very random orbits. Some might be going around the same direction as the galaxy. Some of them might be going the opposite direction as the galaxy. You know, there's one going the opposite direction, the way everything else is rotating. And what that's going to tell us is something about how the galaxy formed. So we're going to look at that coming up here in a section or two as to how the galaxy formed. How did we form a halo where everything's random? And then still form a disk where everything's ordered. And then even closer into the bulge, you get back almost to the randomness again. So there's a couple different parts, and we're going to look at that when we talk about how the galaxy actually formed. And here it is. Here's what we need to, this is table from your textbook. So uh, table 14.1. 1. And this just looks at the different properties of the galaxy. So what we see about the disk, about the halo, and about the bulge are the things that we have to be able to explain. You know, if a theory is going to be able to, we're going to cover the theory as to how the galaxy formed, we have to be able to explain how each of these parts is there. So what you see with the, di with, with the disk is highly flattened with, as compared to the halo and the bulge. Halo is big and spherical, maybe a little bit flattened. Bulge is sort of in between. The galactic disk has young and old stars, has very, very young stars that are you know, millions of years old. It has stars that are just forming. It also has older stars. You know, Our sun's five billion years old. It's a relatively old star. 
There are also stars that would be older than our sun in the, in the disk. When we look at the halo, we don't see any young stars. So when you look at the halo of the galaxy, it's old stars only. So if the halo is 10 billion years old, then you're not going to see any stars you know, brighter than the sun. You know, stars of the sun would be the brightest stars on the main sequence in the, if you look in the halo. Bulge is kind of a mixture again. In terms of gas and dust, a lot of gas and dust in the disk, nothing in the halo. Essentially zero. Stars forming, well, forming stars in the disk, we've seen, we've looked at all, we looked at all the nebulae, we looked at all of that, you know, where the emission nebulae are and all the reflection nebulae and the dark nebulae. All good sites of areas where stars could currently be forming. When we look at the halo, there's no sign of star formation in the last 10 billion years. There's no gas and dust and no sign of star formation. And the bulge kind of in between. You've got some star formation, you have some gas and dust, but not, as, not complete, not exactly the same as you have further out. Orbits we looked at last time on the last slide. Circular, pretty much circular orbits. Not exactly, they're all going to be elliptical according to Kepler, so they're not perfectly circular orbits, but pretty much circular, sort of the way pretty much in our solar system all the planets orbit around in pretty much circles. Yeah, they're slightly elliptical, but pretty much circular. Yes? Um, how often do the theories get revisited? Constantly. I mean, any, any theory, especially about this kind of stuff, is constantly looked at. I mean, major changes, probably, probably on rare occasions, you need something major to change. You know, you have a nice theory that's working, you're not just going to throw it out. You know, you tend to tweak it first and keep it going until something gets too complicated or until there's some new finding that completely throws out something in your theory. But constantly, I mean, any scientific theory should constantly be being looked at. I mean, Einstein's general relativity we did last time. Well, they're constantly looking at ways, you know, how can we find something that's better than general relativity? And there's probably something there that is because general relativity doesn't work and it's at the center of a black hole. It breaks down completely. So there's a problem. But it's constantly being worked, constantly being worked. Spiral arms we'll come back and look at, but there is a spiral structure to our disk. Not in the halo at all. Any, no, structure, no structure at all. If you look at the coloring, what colors you see, you tend to see the blue spiral arms in the disk, white maybe overall, and very red when you look in the halo. All the stars in the halo are either red main sequence stars or red giant stars that have formed from those red main sequence stars. All the big bright blue stars are long since gone because nothing's formed in 10 billion years. So that's just sort of what we need to account for. How did, the, how did the Milky Way form? We need to be able to try to explain many of these, these aspects that we see. Yes, sir? So the galaxies, will they eventually like die from all the stars? Eventually, yeah. They'd eventually fade out. I mean, eventually you'd lose, if you'd finish up the gas and the gas and dust would form and eventually the galaxy would fade out. It, had, it wouldn't have been enough time in the universe to have seen one yet. Because many of those stars, I mean look at the sun, the sun, stars like the sun last 10 billion years, so there are galaxies that consist of stars that are like the sun or smaller, but that's still a lot of stars and those, those faint, faint stars last a long time. Not just tens, but hundreds of billions of years or more. So eventually, you know, going, if you can go a trillion years into the future, you know, galaxies would look quite different. There wouldn't be, you know, star formation, stars would eventually be used up. Gas would eventually be used up. So it would, it would just be like a bunch of, like, the uh, black dwarfs, basically? 
essentially you'd have a bunch, yeah, a bunch of black dwarfs, what black holes are left, neutron stars, you just have all a bunch of compact dead objects. Brown dwarfs, planets, you know, whatever was whatever was left from it would be about it. Okay? Question? Yeah. Taking the distance of stars outside of our galaxy, wouldn't that be inaccurate in 10 years or maybe more? But well, the distances, oh, you mean the distance to our, because we're moving, you mean? Or? Well, it would ch yeah, the distance would change, but the amount by which the distance would change is tiny compared to the distance. So it would be, you know, okay, the distance between us and London. Okay, we did that, it was on the homework. Was that on this homework? Yeah, it was on your homework, wasn't I have you do that? No, that was the other class, never mind. They had to do the calculation to figure that it changes at three centimeters per year. I don't remember if I gave it to this class earlier or not, but the distance between us and you know, Europe is changing, getting for three centimeters apart per year. Well, we don't really update all the tables you know, each year. Even over hundreds of years, it's made three meters difference. Well, you know, they're not going to raise the prices to the trip, for the plane tri trip to London by, because it's three meters longer. And it's similar in that when you're talking about distances to the other galaxies within our galaxy, it's so small that it really doesn't make any difference. Okay, other questions? Nope. Okay, so what do we think our how do we think our galaxy formed? Well, sort of a lot like the solar system did, and we went through that quickly, briefly earlier on, that you would have had some big cloud that was formed, that formed a couple clouds perhaps, that maybe collided together, started collapsing. And what happened is that you had things moving. Originally you had that big halo around it. That's where the stars started forming. There was a lot of gas and dust. So it was forming all the stars, you know, young stars and young stars, big stars, little stars. It was forming everything. But what would happen because things were going in random areas, you know, things were going this way and that way. There was, there was an overall rotation, but there were particles going this way and that way they'd collide together. So you'd get gas clouds colliding and the gas clouds would all collide, they'd lose energy and they'd collapse down to the plane. So you'd leave all the stars that formed. The stars didn't collide. Stars are much too small. So relative to the distances between them, you know, it would be taking, you know, taking a few little ping pong balls and bouncing them around, you know, the room and what's the odds that they're actually going to crash into each other? And that's probably overestimating what the stars would be. You know, they're not, you know, I could throw a few random ping pong balls to me on the room, and they're, they're never going to bounce into each other, right? Maybe once in a rare while, so stars could collide. But if you had big beach balls, the same number of big beach balls in the room, bouncing around, they're going to hit each other? Yeah, they're going to constantly be bumping into each other. Well, the gas clouds are so much bigger than the stars, they're going to tend to bounce into each other. And as they do, they lose energy and they collapse so all the dust ends up down in the plane. And you leave all of these stars that formed out here. Now it did form hot young stars, so it formed blue stars, but if this all happened 10 billion years ago, all the O stars are gone, they went through their life, all the B stars are gone, they went through their lives, A stars, as you work your way down the main sequence, you're down to stars like the Sun or even fainter stars that are still left in that halo. Because all the gas and dust got compressed to the plane, and there's nothing left to form stars. You couldn't form any new stars in the halo. All that's left there is the stars that were there. This is similar to our solar system. It actually looks like our solar system in which the planets condensed down to the plane. So you had the planets and most of the material went down to the plane. 
But you do have material orbiting in all sorts of odd orbits around the, around the sun. That orbit in that go up, you know, go up well above the solar system and well below it. And those are the comets. So the comets sort of form a big cloud around our solar system the way the halo forms a big cloud around our galaxy. So again, formation like the sun, material would have compressed down to the disk the way we talked about the sun forming and would have condensed towards the center. And as it condensed, it would have picked up whatever little bit of rotation it had would have been magnified. You're bringing material down to the center, you're magnifying that rotation, it's getting faster and faster. The ice skaters swing their arms in, right? Spin their arms, bring their arms in as they're spinning and they spin faster and faster. So it's going to spin faster and it's all going to start going in some sort of coherent direction. So it kind of explains a lot of the things that we see in the galaxy today. As we're here, you have very ordered motion in the disk. Everything's going in the same direction. You have the stars that formed very early on when the galaxy was a big glob and everything was moving every which way, which might be going this way, might be going that, you know, every, every which way I can possibly do. They're all moving every which direction. So we see that it explains a lot of the things you see. It explains why we only see old stars. It explains why we only see, we see the younger stars in the disk. So it gives a lot of the explanation. It's probably our best theory right now. Is it perfect? No. There's always something else we've got to come up with. So there are always going to be tweaks to it. But as we mentioned earlier, you, know, you don't usually just throw it out and say, oh, let's come up with something completely different unless there's some major reason. We find some new piece of evidence that says, you know, something's really wrong here with this that we have to completely change. Spiral arms. Okay. In the galaxy we see, in many galaxies, we see spiral arms. Now, spiral arms are sort of an interesting thing because they, if you think about them this way, they shouldn't exist and you tend to think about you know, like a little pinwheel. They should be rotating around and you'd rotate, inner parts would rotate faster and faster because you're closer to the thing, like the planets, and outer parts rotate slower and slower. So every couple times you'd wind, eventually you should end up with all the galaxies getting very, very tightly wound spiral arms just because they're all rotating the same. I mean, they're all rotating and they'd be splitting. They'd sort of curl up over time. But this doesn't happen. If it did, then all the galaxies, all these galaxies now would look, should look, shouldn't look like this. And we do see many galaxies that look like this with very widespread spiral arms. We see some that look like this and you see some here. But if the galaxies all formed their spiral structure again many billions of years ago as they formed, they all should be winding up and it only takes a few turns for it to happen. If you think about this, our, ga our sun takes about 225 million years to make one orbit around the galaxy. Long time, right? But when you're talking billions of years, so that means in just four rotations, for in a billion, one billion years, which is still small astronomically, you'd have gone around one, two, three, four, you'd be all wound up. You'd wind up those spiral arms. So there's something different going on with the spiral arms. That is not, they're just rotating along with the galaxy. And what we think they are is what we call a density wave. So uh, one of the ways you can think about it is sort of that tra as a traffic jam. You know, the traffic jam, you've got a denser area of cars and it might slowly, the, the actual progression might move, but not as fast as the cars move. Right? So the cars within the traffic jam are actually getting through it and you eventually get out of it. But that traffic jam, assuming it's not due to an accident or something that's, you know, at some specific point, but it's just some area where you've got cars denser together, 
it may slowly move down the highway at a very slow rate. But the cars will actually move through it, maybe not tremendously quick, you're going to slow down as you go into it, and then move out. So it's sort of the way we think of it is as a, de a dense wave of density wave of material that's rotating slower than the rest of the it's rotating actually slower than the rest of the galaxy, and as it passes through, it enhances where the stars have formed. So stars have, stars start to form as the density waves passes through them. It sort of helps with compression, helps with the initial formation of stars and also enhances the spiral arms. They stand out. So if there's this spiral wave for whatever reason that has formed, when you form all these big bright blue stars and all these emission nebulae and they all glow right around it, it highlights it. You know, it enhances it. It makes it look very pretty there. It stands out. But the wave itself, these stars will move through. They don't move with the spiral arm. The whole spiral arm and the stars don't rotate. The, spiral, the stars would then move out of the spiral arm over time. And you see the older stars out here that have actually moved out of the spiral arm over, you know, again, tens and hundreds of millions of years. The blue stars, the things that live for only a few million, never leave the spiral arms. Stars like the sun could slowly wander out over many billions of years could slowly wander out of the spiral arms and not be a part of them anymore. Question, sir? Yes? Not in the, well, in, in the way that a traffic jam's an illusion? Yeah. I mean, it's there, but there's not really... It's not really like... It's not really that there's any structure. I mean, it's something else. It's a wave. It's just a dense area of star formation. So once it starts, it just propagates itself. So, so Not, I mean, not, it's there. It's real. Right. It's very real that there are spiral arms. But it's not that there's something in the star, in the galaxy, that's I mean, it's, it's what we think of as a density wave. It's not something physically there that's keeping them in line. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, yes? Um, you said that, like, well, the spiral arms are only part of it, so if you started in a spiral arm, you know, there'd be stars that would slowly wander out into here and you know, might end up into another spiral arm at some point. So they just want it still be in the disk of the galaxy. It's just not the whole disk of the galaxy isn't filled with spiral arms. So you might, be, you might have formed in here and then you might be working your way out, but you'd still be at about the same distance. You'd still be orbiting around the galaxy at the same distance. So it's possible that you know, you're born in one spiral arm, you might end up in another one at some point, and you know, going in and out. So just move around them. Okay? Uh, wouldn't that affect the, um, the stars and like, the direction? Like, remember I asked you about the binary stars? Mm -hmm. They could, if, you know, if like two or three that were kind of thrown together in close enough proximity, okay. you have a whole bunch of you know, supernovas everywhere. So wouldn't you kind of theoretically think that this would affect that, the rotation? Or affect the rotation of the galaxy? You, well, you, not the rotation, but more like just the location. It would affect the, rota the locations, yes. The sun moving through there. I mean, yes, over millions and billions of years, the constellations would change. You'd be at a different point in the galaxy, so you know, all the stars aren't moving exactly the same. You might, is that what you mean? That if I'm out here, then I might be seeing, you know, a different grouping of stars. Well, Is that, that the, it, would, it would affect the stars, yeah. Yeah, you'd see different stars. But again, it's not something that would happen in our lifetime, right? Because it takes, you know, 
If it takes, it takes the sun 225 million years to go around once, you know, it's not, the, the, the spiral waves aren't just sitting there. They're moving too, but right. they're moving a lot slower. Right. So you know how close you're moving and everything's moving about the same. It would take a long time for things to change. It can happen. So also, um, do you think that you could kind of measure each galaxy by the number of arms? By the number of arms? At how tight they are? That's how one of the ways we classify the galaxies that we'll look at in the next chapter, yeah. That's actually how you look at one of the ways that you look at how the different types of spiral galaxies. Okay. So here's an example as how we think the, why the spiral arms keep going. So why do they keep going? Because you form some stars and then they compress or the supernovae compress and they form, you know, new stars will form and it sort of enhances the brightness of that spiral arms. But as we mentioned there at the end, the origin, where did the spiral, was this sort of our theory as to why the spiral arms and what they're doing. Why they start in the first place is an excellent question. Now, why do some galaxies have spiral arms and some don't? And there are galaxies that are flattened to a disk that don't have spiral arms. There are galaxies that are flattened to a disk that do have spiral arms. So there's all sorts of different things there that we don't completely understand yet. So. The, or, the origin, actually where the spiral arms come from, why they start in the first place, is not something, is something that astronomers are still trying to figure out, not something that we really understand at this point. Maybe they haven't formed yet. Hmm? Maybe they haven't formed yet? So like in a few more billion years, you'll start to see a little bit. You might see something different that would, you know. That's what we're looking at. Everything that we see is just a snapshot of right now. We're making assumptions well. and theories on what happened. A snapshot of a long time ago, actually, not right now, because I don't, I can't tell you what the Andromeda galaxy looks like right now. Right, right. We'll we'll know more. So we got to come back in a hundred billion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, I mean, there's there's things that are changing, and the more we can see, if we could watch galaxies for a billion years and watch them change, we'd be able to understand them a lot better. And it would be like it might be yeah yeah and it might be like trying to understand people by looking at them at this one instant you know how the census does it you look at everybody on April first of this year and you know what but how did they change in between you, know, you can get an idea oh maybe the how how people we knew nothing about people you know how do they change you know here's this small one the big one this you know what happens and you couldn't tell if you look at everybody at just one instant. And just that's the only instant I can study, and you couldn't see them change. You know, if the life you were only looking at them over that one millisecond, you couldn't understand how people change. We can't really understand completely how stars and galaxies change. We're trying to interpret it by looking at billions of different people to sort of place together. Here is how people change. Well, we can sit in there and watch. You know, over a lifetime, we can watch people change, so we can see that and we can confirm our theories. We can't do it with this. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so mass of the Milky Way. I think we might just make it. Okay, mass of the Milky Way galaxy. When we determine the mass of something, we looked at this using Kepler's laws. You looked at something orbiting something else, and it only depends on how much matter is between that object and the center of the galaxy. 
the material that's further out doesn't really affect the orb isn't doesn't really affect the orbital speed. So you just need to look at that. The gravity all acts as though it's concentrated at the center. So you can essentially imagine that we can determine how much mass is between us and the sun by looking at its speed here. For another star, it would be something different. Okay, a star further out would have more material between it and the center of the galaxy. So it would have a different gravitational pull. But anything that's out beyond the sun doesn't affect its orbit. So all the material out here doesn't affect how the sun orbits around the center of the galaxy. In terms of determining the mass, we only have to look at the material inside. And that's the mass that we can measure. So if we look at the sun's motion around the center of the galaxy, we can determine how much matter is between the sun and the galactic center. I can't tell you anything about what's further out. And this is where we start to get into some problems because there is more material. We'd expect that eventually, as you get look at stars that are further and further out in the galaxy, you know, the stars in close should orbit really fast, right? Like Mercury zips around the sun. Venus, a little slower, Earth slower, get out to Neptune and Pluto, they're going real, real slow around the sun. What we find is that the velocities in the galaxy don't change like that. The velocities stay almost the same as you get further and further out. And in fact, here's the curve of it. There should be at some point when you get outside all of the mass, you should be like you're in the solar system. And things should start moving slower and slower and slower. That's what Kepler says. Because in the solar system, all the sun, all the mass is in the sun. You know, all the mass in the solar system is the sun. The Earth, Venus, Jupiter, we're negligible compared to the mass of the sun. You know, we're, we're this little tiny speck compared to the entire... So when we talk about the Earth orbiting the sun, all the mass is at the sun. When we talk about Jupiter orbiting at the sun, all the mass is still at the sun. And the objects go slower and slower as you get further and further out. So that's what you'd expect to see in the ga- as you look at the stars at the edge of the galaxy and look further out. Eventually you should have, you know, well, all the mass is essentially inside that orbit. So they should be going slower and slower. We don't find that. In fact, even weirder, not only do they not go slower and slower, they're actually going faster and faster. Now that doesn't mean they're, going, they're, making, they're orbiting around quicker, but their speed, how many kilometers per second they're moving, is actually getting greater and greater. Now we can work theoretically with this type of curve and which is just looking at the rotation speed as you get start from the galactic center and as you go further and further out and you can use that to determine how much mass there has to be in the galaxy. So when you don't see this, when you don't see it starting to drop off, it means there still has to be a lot of mass out further than you are. And that's what this is telling us is that for, the, for, this, for our galaxy there has to be twice the mass of the galaxy outside what we see visibly. So you see the, all the visible disk of our galaxy? You know, we can imagine that. There's got to be twice as much mass as there is here. There's got to be two more galaxies worth of material that we can't see. That's dark. That has to be the, to, in order to explain this. So in order to explain this there's got to be all that extra matter there. It's one of the things, we'll talk about dark matter a little more later in the next chapter, but that's what we call dark matter. And that's based on our understanding of gravity. Now, I guess the other thing that you could consider that could be wrong is maybe gravity works differently at some point. Maybe there's some, our theories don't say it. Einstein, Newton, all say that it shouldn't, that it should do this. 
Maybe there's some other theory that changes when, when you know, we start talking about gravity on tremendous scales. Again, that would require some sort of evidence to find something else that does it. Right now we just go by, okay, there's got to be something there and there's got to be some sort of dark matter. And I'll show you a little bit about what we think that, what we think that might be. I think that comes up mostly, well, a little bit in this chapter, maybe mostly in the next chapter. But there's got to be a lot more matter out there because otherwise if there wasn't matter or if gravity didn't act differently, we would see this. At some point we'd get far enough out in the galaxy. Here's our sun. Remember we were about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way out. So when you get out towards the edge of the galaxy, that's about the visible edge of the galaxy right there, about 15,000 parsecs. It should start those stars and there's still some stars out there. You can find some that are at greater distances. But they're, they're not moving slower and slower. They're moving faster and faster. So what could it be? And when we say dark matter, it doesn't mean it's just dark visibly. We don't just see it in visible light, that we can take a picture of it. But some of the examples of things that would be hard to see, well, black holes like the sun, you know, supernovae explosions made a black hole. But remember that we're talking about double the mass of our galaxy. That's an awful lot of material to be formed. That's an awful lot of material. Brown dwarfs, faint white dwarfs, and red dwarfs, those are things that are very hard to see. Brown dwarfs, remember, are failed stars, didn't get hot enough to ignite nuclear reactions. Faint white dwarfs, when you're getting far away, remember they're so tiny, when you're looking far away they'd be very hard to see. Red dwarf stars, main sequence stars, but they're real tiny. So again, they'd be hard to see and they'd be a possibility to account for some of this mass, but probably not, not at all of it. Another one that's been suggested is that there could be some sort of weird subatomic particle, but again, it's got to make some kind of prediction, so you've got to have some kind of evidence for it, and that's something we don't have any evidence for so far. But when I go back and say it has to be dark at all wavelengths, it means that when we look out there, you know, we don't see, if, we, if there was a lot of hydrogen gas out there, it would emit radio waves. We would be able to see the 21 centimeter radio emission of hydrogen. We don't see that from out here. If it were, you know, really hot matter, it would be emitting x-rays. We don't see that. So, in other words, it's not just invisible, but it's got to be hard to see at any wavelength. So it can't be emitting a lot of any, any wavelength. You know, dark, I say, usually gas is a very easy one to say. Well, there's just a lot of gas out there. You know, the galaxy formed, but only some of the gas collapsed. But then why, why don't we see it? It should always be able to emit that 21 centimeter hydrogen line. We should be able to see that at each point. These are just a few of the examples. Again, stellar mass black holes. I don't think we could have, we don't think we could have created enough. I mean, each black hole, each supernova explosion would create, you know, a couple solar masses worth of matter. But we've got billions of solar masses in the galaxy. So we need billions of these in order to, you know, you need billions of these just to match what we have in the galaxy and then you've got to go a couple times beyond that. That's a lot of black holes a lot of black holes out there. These are probably, again, if we're looking for things like stars, that's probably the best case. Brown dwarfs would be almost impossible to see unless they're very close to us. They'd glow in the infrared, but even then they're going to be extremely faint. So that's probably our best option. Weird subatomic, subatomic particles, well maybe, but you need to be able to have some way, you know, you can say there's something out there, but if there's no way to detect it or to make some prediction, it's kind of hard. Some of these we can at least make some attempts to detect. 
Now, finally, last section, the galactic center. If we look towards the center of our galaxy, and there, here it is in the visible. Real nice and beautiful, right? You know, got these star clouds around it, got some nice dust, but you can't see anything there. Center of our galaxy should be incredibly bright. If there were not dust and gas in between us, there, that would be one of the brightest areas. Even if we go into the infrared, so we zoom up this, this picture, there's the center of our galaxy, and we zoom in, there in the infrared is the center of our galaxy. And we're looking well in there, about a light year. That's about a light year across, that pic, that, that image. So we're looking way down in the center of our galaxy. There's still nothing there. Even in the infrared, most of that light has been blocked. It's really completely obscured. The only way we can study our, the center of our own galaxy is with radio waves. The only things that are, that are easy enough that can penetrate the dust. That can penetrate the dust and get out of there. The dust absorbs, remember, the blue very well, and then the red, and you get towards longer and longer wavelengths, it affects them less and less. Well, when you have enough dust, it even affects the infrared, and the radio is going to be the only thing left that comes through. And I think, yep, here's the radio images. As you look in the radio, as you zip in, you actually have one of the brighter spots in the sky. There's the, that's infrared. You start to see it a little bit brighter. It actually stands out, at least, in terms of infrared. And when you look in the radio here, and then here, towards the center, you can actually map out one of the most intense areas. And you actually see that the galaxy has some little spiral structure, almost. This little spiral way going down, way down in the, in the central part of the galaxy. Again, and you're looking at the very, very central area. If this was around the sun, that would be about, well, the nearest star between us and there would be you know, a little further than this one parsec line. So a lot more, very looking much more in detail at the center of the galaxy this way. But it's bright. In the radio, we can actually see it. We can map it. We don't know what it looks like optically. We can't see it. No, Hubble telescope can't see it. You know, none of the other telescopes, there's just not, no light coming from it. It's not that it's no, not there. It's just all that light is absorbed by the dust coming between it. Let me see. What we see at the galactic center is, first of all, a density of stars that's tremendous compared to what we have around here. So if we did live at the center of the galaxy, you know, night sky would be a lot brighter. Be a lot more stars out there visible, a lot closer together. You know, wouldn't have just these scattering of stars across the sky. You know, you got star here, star here. We'll put a million stars in between it. So you're going to have, you know, it's going to be bright at night as it is during the day. There are going to be that many stars there. You still wouldn't want to live there. There's very strong magnetic fields, extremely strong X-ray source. That's that black hole at the center. Um, Material, when you look at the interior, this ring of material, we looked briefly at the accretion disk when we talked about the black holes last time. And that's our disk of material that's only a few parsecs across. But when we're talking about the center of the galaxy, that's really condensed. So there's some sort of material that is probably likely spell, uh, spiraling into the black hole, which would be this strong X-ray source. Again, not the black hole itself. We mentioned that last time. You can't get material out of the black hole. But as it spirals in and heats up, it gets into incredibly high temperatures and will emit x-rays. So we can actually see that. We can see the area around the black hole glowing strong in the x-rays. Once that material crosses the event horizon, it's gone. We can't see anything from it. So these are a few things that we see near there. But again, the interesting thing is the brightness. Just how bright. You can imagine, for every star you've got, you've got a million stars. 
So if you can see 6,000 stars in the sky, you're going to see 6 billion stars. The night sky would be incredibly bright if you lived near the galactic center. Again, with all those strong x-rays there, not going to be a pleasant, pleasant place to live. Okay, let me see what else I had. We're set. These are the ones, this is how we sort of determine the, ma the mass of the black hole at the center, or the object at the center at least. Got, pretty much got to be a black hole. This is what we're looking at. This is actually an object, probably a star, very close to the uh, center, central black hole, which is this X-ray source, Sagittarius A star. And if you look at how it orbits, we're looking at 1992, 94, 96. You're looking at the period of only, you know, 11 years to go around here. That's not a very small distance. I mean, that's a very large distance it's moving in that time. And as we look at not only this star, but a lot of others orbiting around this, if we look at something orbiting something else, we can determine the mass of this object. So we can determine the mass. So if we measure out how long the period is, how long it's going to take, and once we've got a good chunk of the orbit, we can then say, okay, it's going to take it, you know, 15 years to go around and we know how far, what the large axis is of that, then we can also de actually determine the mass. And we end up with a number of about 3.7 million solar masses. That's a small black hole for a ga galaxy. We have a relatively small black hole. I know, 3.7, that's, that's giant compared to the ones we were talking about not that long ago, you know, this last time. When you're talking about things that are 3, 5, 10 times the mass of the sun, those are big enough. Now we have one that's 3.7. I think one of the bigger ones now is about a billion solar masses. So that would be 300 times bigger than the one at the center of our galaxy. But we can do it. We can measure how big it must be just based on the orbits of these stars. And that's it. I'll, I'll get through the summary and we made chapter 14 in one day. So yay. Um, galaxy is all the material in our galaxy. It can be stars, it can be gas and dust. It's bound together by gravity. It's not going anyplace. Ours is a spiral galaxy. We know that from radio measurements and indirect measurements. Variable stars, I talked about how we use those to determine distances. That was our next, next uh, step in the distance ladder. True extent of the galaxy, we use globular clusters. Star formation only in the disk. Not in the halo, not much in the bulge, only primarily in the disk. And I mentioned, talked to you a little bit about what we don't understand about spiral arms, but they're probably density waves. And the big things, and we'll come back to this in the next chapter, in the next two couple chapters, is that the rotation curves. There's a lot, of, a lot of matter that's undetectable, that we have not detected. That's what we call dark matter. We'll come and talk about that in a, in a later chapter. And then finally, activity near the galactic center suggests that there's about almost a four million solar mass black hole there. So, we got through chapter 14, we'll go on and start on 15 on Tuesday. Don't forget you do have an article review that's due today, so if you have it now, I'll be happy to take it. If you're going to email it to me, that's great, as long as I get it by the end of the day. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, you're right, sorry. End of the day tomorrow. 13th, not today. So if you have it, I'll take it. If not, email it to me before the end of the day tomorrow. iTunes quiz if you want to look at that, but I'll remind you next Tuesday as well. So, have a good weekend.